Why should God care how we worship him as long as our heart is in the right place? An increasing number of people in our world will describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. They recognise that there is some kind of, of higher power or spiritual reality, but are put off by the specific rules and restrictions of formal religion. And a common question raised by those who are spiritual but not religious is, well, why should God care how we worship him as long as we want to worship him and love him? You know, if there really is a God and if he's loving, why would he care about the specifics of one religion and this one versus that one? Wouldn't he just look at our hearts and be happy that our motives were good? Well, that's actually a really good question, and it's a question we'll explore together as we continue in our series in the book of Deuteronomy. Before we dive in to look at the details of the trees of this passage that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 12, it'll be helpful to get a big picture and a view of the forest as a whole. So here is a diagram that gives you a sense of what Deuteronomy is doing. It's built around three major speeches, one, two, and three, that Moses is giving to the Israelites as they prepare to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. And in the first few weeks of semester, we covered that first speech where it recounts God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness, their rebellious history, uh, during that 40 years in the desert. Uh, Then the second big speech has two major sections. General commands in chapters 5 to 11 and detailed ones in chapters 12 to 26. So earlier this semester we spent two weeks looking at the general command, especially chapters 5 to 6. And in chapter 5 we saw the famous Ten Commandments. These commandments that are fairly well known, and we saw that rather than just being about these rigid external obedience, that they're actually all about love. In Matthew 22, in the New Testament, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament law? And he answers that the greatest commandment is to love. To love the Lord your God. That's from Deuteronomy 6. And the second greatest is to love God. People. That's from Leviticus 19.18. So Jesus says the law is all about love. But notice what he says there in verse 40. It's not just that these two happen to be the most important in a long list. No, it goes deeper than that. What does he say in verse 40? It's that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. These two commands love God and love people, are like these two big coat hangers. And everything else in the Old Testament law hangs off one of those two hooks. So let's keep Jesus' coat hangers up there and come back to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. And if you look, you can see how each of the Ten Commandments hangs off and expands one of those two underlying commands. Commandments 1 to 4 are all about helping Israel know what it looks like in practice to love God, actually fleshing it out. So being committed to him alone, not having other gods. It's kind of like a marriage of committed faithfulness, not making idols, honouring his name and so on. You can see how that's showing them what it looks like to love God. And on the right, Commandments 5 to 10 are all about helping them know in practice what it looks like to love people, actually fleshing it out. Do you want to love someone? Don't murder them. It's good advice. Don't cheat on them. But it's not just the Ten Commandments that hang on those two coat hangers. What did Jesus say? 
It's all the law and the prophets. And when you count them up, across the law of Moses, there are not just 10, there are 613 commands. 613. All of them doing what? Fleshing out in practice what it means to love God and love people. Which raises a very big question. If all of those 613 commands are just about fleshing out those two very simple ones, why did he bother? Why bother with the Ten Commandments or the other 600 plus when he could have just had two? He could have just said, love God, love people, figure the rest out for yourselves. If he had, Deuteronomy and Leviticus would be a lot shorter. Your Bible reading plan would be a lot easier. And if motive was all that mattered, God could have. But God didn't, because while motive is important, it is not all that matters. It's not enough to want to love others. We actually need to know how to love them. When you stop and think about this, we know this is true in relationships. Uh, You may have heard about the five love languages, five different ways that people tend to feel love, the way that we both express and feel love. Words of affirmation, physical touch, receiving gifts, quality time, acts of service. And these are actually really, really helpful. Because they they help people realise that the way I feel inclined to show love to others might not actually be the way that they feel loved by. So imagine my wife Alex's birthday was coming up and she said to me, Ben, I'm really into quality time. That's the biggest thing that makes me feel loved. Imagine I was like, nah, sorry Alex, I'm more into gift giving, like that's more my thing. And so I buy her all these presents for her birthday, but I don't spend any time with her. How do you think she's going to feel? She's not going to feel very loved, is she? Because here's the thing, if I make it all about me and how I want to love her, I'm not actually loving her. I'm not making it about her, I'm making it all about me. To love her actually means to listen to her about what pleases her, what makes her happy, and then loving her that way. There's some free relationship advice for you. But it's the same with God. If I make it all about me and how I want to express my spirituality, I'm not actually loving God. I'm making it all about me. To love God actually means to listen to him about what pleases him, what makes him happy, and then loving him that way. And that is one big reason why God doesn't just say, love God, love your neighbour, and be done with it. Because we actually need to know how to love God and how to love our neighbour. And that is really what Deuteronomy 12 to 26 is all about. Chapters 5 to 11, you get the big headline, the general commands, Ten Commandments, love God um, and love people, uh, fleshed out in greater form, uh, in, in, a, in a summarised form. But then chapters 20 to 26 is all about taking that much deeper. You get much more practical detail about what love God and love of neighbour actually look like in the day-to-day lives of, of ancient Israelites. And it gets very specific and down into the details. So what we're doing is, over these next two weeks, this week and next week, we're looking at chapter 12 to 26 as a whole, over two weeks. This week is Love God, Extended Edition, where we're going to look at what this section as a whole has to say to us about that first and greatest commandment. 
And then, surprise, surprise, next week will be Love People Extended Edition, looking at that same big section and trying to pull out the key driving thrust of what it looks like to actually love others. Sounds good? Let's jump into it. If you've got a Bible in front of you, have a look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we'll see what it says. Deuteronomy 12, from verse 1. It says, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess, as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. Now notice that these verses about destroying the worship sites of these foreign gods. And when you first read this, you might think these verses are commands against worshipping those other gods. But that's not quite true. They're actually about how you worship the true God. That is to say, these verses aren't strictly, at this point at least, about who you worship, although that is important, but these verses are about how you worship. You can see this in verse 4. It's just told them to break down these pagan worship sites, and then it says what? You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. It's warning them against coming into the land, finding these pagan temples and worship sites, and going, hey, these are pre-made. We could use these to worship our God. And God is saying, no, it matters not only that you worship me, but also how you worship me. Don't do it in their way. This point is reinforced at the end of the chapter. Check out Deuteronomy chapter 12 from verse 29. Have a look at it there. See what it says. Verse 29. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. No, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. You see, these other nations did some pretty messed up stuff. They burned their own kids to death as sacrifices to their gods. They had temple prostitutes where you go to sex as a so-called act of worship. And God is saying, those are not ways to love me. Do not worship me in that way. It's not enough to simply have the right motive. How you worship me actually matters. So there's some things about how they're not to worship him. But then positively, Deuteronomy 12 also gives us a lot about how they should worship him. Have a look in your Bibles back from verse 4, and we'll read through to verse 7, and notice what it says about how the Israelites should worship God positively. From verse 4, it says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. Um, what you have vowed to give in your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herds and flocks, 
There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and all your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Notice there's this emphasis on this one central place of worship. Instead of the Israelites going off under every hill and under every spreading tree and worshipping God at these pagan worship sites, verse 5 says that there's this one central place where God would put his name. This would later be revealed as the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, they weren't there yet. And they would uh, come there and bring their tithes and offerings and do what? Eat together and rejoice. That is God's love language. That is part of how, at least, there's more than just this, but that is part of how God wanted the Israelites to worship him. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what normally comes to mind for you when you think of Old Testament sacrifices. Maybe people rocking up to the temple all sad, like, oh, I've got to give up and sacrifice the best of my stuff and give it away. I was hoping I could actually eat that lamb, but now someone else gets to have it. What a sacrifice. But actually, this is describing a joyful feast, isn't it? You bring your sacrifices and eat them and rejoice. And that language of rejoicing is repeated three times in this chapter, in verse 7 and 12 and 18. It's really being emphasized that these were joyful feasts, enjoying God's good blessings. So rejoicing is a word that's repeated three times in this chapter. And another one is tithing. Verses 6, 11, 17, always connected with the rejoicing. He says another part of God's love language was for them to bring God their tithes. Now, the tithe was an important uh, part of how Israel was to worship God in Deuteronomy 12 to 26, but one that's often misunderstood. So let's explore what the tithe really was and how it might apply to us today. Now, the Hebrew word translated as tithe literally just means a tenth. Nothing fancy. That's all it means. They were to bring a tenth of their harvest as an offering, a tenth of their wheat, their livestock, their wine, and so on. The Israelites had to tithe. Now, uh, some well-meaning Christians have looked at that and said, oh, well, the Israelites were supposed to tithe, and that's in the Bible, so we should tithe too. Christians have to give a tenth of their money, they say. And so you'll sometimes hear church leaders talk about tithes and offerings. But we've got to be very careful here. We saw a couple of weeks ago at the Thursday public meeting that the law is not binding on God's people today. Here's how it works. God and his perfect moral character is eternal. That is unchanging. God has never changed. But the law is not eternal. The law is a temporary application of God's character to a specific time and place, namely to ancient Israelite society, which means that the ancient Israelites were under the law. They were bound by it like a marriage covenant including all those specific stipulations. But the Old Testament tells us, as we read across its broad story, it tells us that Israel failed. They cheated on God. They were unfaithful to him. They broke the marriage covenant and went after other gods. They didn't fulfill the law. And that's why Jesus came. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and he did fulfill the law. He perfectly loved God and neighbor. And what does that mean for Christians today? 
Well, Jesus kept the law when we couldn't. He lived the perfect life of love that you and I, that we all fail to live. And yet he, he died on the cross in our place. So that for all who trust in him, Jesus now applies his righteousness, his perfect life of love lived in fulfillment of the law. He gives that, he applies that to us so that we can be declared right in God's sight as a free gift of grace. Which means that the law, including the law about tithing, has now been fulfilled. It is no longer binding on God's people. Christians are not under the law. So it's not as simple as saying, well, the Israelites tithed, so therefore Christians should tithe and give a tenth of their money to church. No, because that ignores that the law was given to Israel for a particular time in history. It ignores that the law has been fulfilled by Christ and that we're not under the law. And if those alone weren't big enough problems, it also completely misunderstands what the tithe was about. Think about what we're reading here in Deuteronomy 12. Does it say you tithe by giving a tenth of your money to the temple? No, not at all. That's not actually what it's saying, is it? You're meant to bring your tithe to the temple and eat it. They were to eat their tithe and rejoice together before the Lord. So if Christians really want to insist on tithing, then don't give your money to church. You should actually bring your money to church and eat it. <laughs> and you're meant to... I don't, I don't know how this tastes. I'm not going to try because this is actually Maya's money, so I don't want to get my saliva all over it. But I bet it probably doesn't taste very good. I wouldn't rejoice while I was eating that. But that's what's described three times. In Deuteronomy 12, they're meant to bring their tithe and eat it. But now, it's mentioned three times in Deuteronomy 12, but not explained in a lot of detail. So let's flip over two chapters to Deuteronomy 14, where we actually get more detail about what's involved with a tithe. So flip over to Deuteronomy 14, and have a look what it says here from verse 22 about the tithe. It gives us a little bit more detail. Then we can think through how this might apply to us. As Christians. Deuteronomy 14, 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produced each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then do what? Exchange your tithe for silver, take the silver with you, and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Once again, what do you do with your tithe? You eat it. And then if the temple is so far away and the Lord has blessed you with so much, a big harvest, all this wheat, all these grapes, you can't carry it all that way, what do you do? You exchange it for, for silver and you don't go to the temple and then just give that money to the temple. No, verse 26, you head to Woolies and buy food for a feast. Not just any food, but whatever you like. Buy the best stuff that you can find. Eat together and there's that language again. Rejoice. 
Now that is quite a beautiful picture, isn't it? So, so one key principle of the tithe here is that rejoicing together and being thankful to God, recognizing him as the good giver of all these things, uh, is, is one of the ways that God loves to see his people enjoying that together. So rejoicing is important, but a second key principle that's really important to the tithe is care for the poor and inclusion of them in that rejoicing. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this, Deuteronomy 14, from the very next verse, verse 27. Have a look what it says. Verse 27, it says, And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So with your tithe, it was not just about you and your family rejoicing on your own, but you would also include and share it with the Levites. Now, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel who were set apart uh, to do the work of the temple. And so they weren't given the same amount of land allotment. They didn't have as many farms. They were set aside to do God's work full time. And so they would be provided for from the generosity of the other Israelites. You wouldn't just include the Levites, but who else? They would also include the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows. So they could all share together in that joyful feast. I love this picture. God has saved us. God is gracious. God has generously blessed us with all this. So God, this is all from you. It's all for you. Let's share together with the poor and the needy and give thanks to God together. Now, can you see how this is showing Israel what it actually looks like in practice to love God? It's awesome, isn't it? It's showing them and us part of God's love language, what pleases him, what he delights in. And he delights in his people coming together to enjoy his goodness and sharing with those in need. So so that's a big part of what the tithe looked like for the Israelites. But that brings us back to the key question, well, how does this apply to us today? That was for them then under the law, but what about for us? Should Christians tithe? Well, first of all, let's be clear how it does not apply to you. If you're a Christian, you are not under the law. You are not bound by tithing laws. But there are some helpful principles that we can learn from the tithing laws. Some things that reflect unchanging truths about what delights God. Because while the law is temporary, God's character is eternal. And the law is a window for us to see into what God's character and what he's like. And it helps discern for us now today, as we look back at the law, we see some truths about God that are reflected in the law, and we think then thoughtfully and with discernment about what that looks like to live lives pleasing to God in our context today. So the tithing laws show us that God delights when his people recognize that that all that they own comes from him as a gracious gift. Everything we own, Belongs to God. Not just 10%, but all of it. God delights when we recognize that and rejoice in him as the giver. God delights in his people sharing their money with the poor and those in need. And God delights in his people providing for those who are set aside 
to devote themselves to his work, whether that be Levites and priests in the Old Testament or gospel workers in the New Testament. So let me suggest two concrete applications for you and me today. These aren't the only two, but here are two ways that you could put uh, put these principles into practice. First, use your money to support gospel work. Use your money to support gospel work. Using our resources to support those who are devoting their time to the spread of the gospel is a great way to love God and love others. If you haven't already, why not start giving to your local church now as a uni student? You don't have to wait till you've got a full-time job. You can start with as little as five or ten bucks a month. It might not seem like a lot, but it'll help you develop that habit of giving, that reminder, God, this is all from you and it's all for you. It can help you develop that habit early on. It's a good idea to see your local church as the primary place for you to support the work of the gospel. But if you're already giving there, you might also consider supporting a missionary or other Christian mission organisations as well. That's the first idea. Uh, Use your money to support gospel work. Second, use your money to support the poor. Remember how God delighted in Israelites sharing with the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow? Well, the same is still true today. And this is not only loving towards others, which kind of feels intuitive, but actually caring for others is also loving towards God. In Proverbs 14.31, it says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. People are made in God's image, and the way we treat image bearers of God deeply matters to the God who made us and loves us. Now, we're going to look at this in greater detail next week as we look at uh, love people. But just briefly, if you're not already, why not use some of what God has given you to support the poor? Compassion is a great organisation committed to releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Sponsoring a child through compassion is, is one of many ways that we can be using our resources to support the poor and needy today. So a final question. How much? Because there are two practical ideas, and there are many others as well, but practical ideas about how you might implement the principles behind the tithing uh, law as a Christian today. But that that brings us to the question of, well, how much should we give away? Should we still, do we still have to give 10%? How how does that actually work? Well, it's important to realise that the New Testament never uses the language of tithing with reference to Christian giving. It never does. Uh, nor at 10%, or actually any percentage figure. It doesn't give any percentages. And that's not, like, that's not like a bug, like God forgot to include that. No, it's a feature. It's quite intentional. God doesn't want us to have an attitude of you know, feeling like we've got to tick the box, give the required amount, and then whew, now I can spend the other 90% however I want. No, because if I'm asking how much is required, I'm actually asking the wrong question. A much better question is, how can I most honour God and love others with everything God has given me? And Jesus is our our model and motivation here. He who was, uh, was wealthy in every sense of the word, and yet he gave all of that up to become humble and poor in order to serve and lift us up. 
the more we grasp all that Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection, how generous God has been towards us in Christ, the more it will motivate us to want to be generous to others in response. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And God cares far more about that than whatever percentage we happen to be giving. In 2 Corinthians 9-7 in the New Testament, Paul tells the church in Corinth, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. He's far more concerned with the attitude of our heart than a set percentage. For some people, 10% might be far more than they can afford. It may just be unable to put food on the table if they were to give away 10%. But for others, they might be able to give way more than 10% and still have more than enough left over. Back when I was in uni, I knew a guy who was earning about $100 a week from his part-time job. So not a huge amount, but his expenses were really low because he lived at home with his parents. He tried not to spend too much money um, where he could. So he had to think, and he decided to sponsor four compassion kids. He was giving away, and that's in addition to other giving he was doing as well. He was giving away much more than 10% of his money. Not because he had to, or because of some law required him to, but because he wanted to. He was so grateful for all that Jesus had done for him. And he wanted to reflect that by blessing others the way God had blessed him. He wasn't asking, where is the line? He wasn't asking, what percentage do I have to give? He was asking, how can I most honour God and love others with everything God has given me? How can I generously give as God has been generous to me in the Lord Jesus? Jesus. 